Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, the author of Mob Files, George Anastasia. George Anastasia, author of Mob Files, Mobsters, Malls, and Murder. Uh, you've been covering the mob for the Philadelphia Inquirer for a lot of years. If you were to take a group of people on a mob tour of the Philadelphia area, where would you take them? Well, you've got to begin in South Philadelphia, which is the nerve center. A couple different restaurants. There's, uh, in fact, I did this one time. There was an auction uh, for uh, a theater company, and, and one of the items bid was a limousine tour of South Philly with me as the, kind of the director. And we hit different spots where there were mob hits and different restaurants where the wise guys would hang out and have dinners. And you could spend probably an hour just driving around South Philadelphia hitting all those spots. Where'd you take them? Different, well, there was a corner of 6th and, 6th and Catherine where Joey Molino was ambushed, 9th and Snyder, 10th and Snyder where Angelo Bruno was ambushed. Uh, back then, Cousins Little Italy, the restaurant still existed. That was where Bruno had his last meal before he was killed. So it's, it, there, it was kind of a connection between food and, and violence, and it all, you know, we just kind of drove around to different spots in South Philadelphia. Are there places people could go and mob spot these days? Well, no, I mean, there's, there are places that have historic references. For example, Dante and Luigi's Restaurant, which is a very good restaurant down on 10th Street, I think it is. Nicky Scarfo Jr. was ambushed there on Halloween night, 1989. He survived that hit, but it was a very famous hit. And, you know, if you're looking for, you want to pick up the vibe or the atmosphere. It, it's not to say the restaurant is mobbed up, because it's not, and it's a very good restaurant. He happened to be eating there that night, and he was shot uh, right in the restaurant. So, yeah, if you wanted to do that, I mean, I, you know, I could put something together, given that I've been around doing this stuff for so long. And some people uh, are fascinated with that. Why the fascination with the mob? I think, well, the fascination with the mob has to go back to the Godfather movies, Mario Puzo, Francis Ford Coppola. I think unlike other underworld groups, everyone has a frame of reference for the mob. The mob's almost become pop culture. It's a, you know, like, it's a, it's a brand, like Prada, like Dolce & Gabbana, the mafia. People have a frame of reference for that, and some people are fascinated with it for a lot of different reasons. It's become part of Americana. Do, do people have this fascination not connecting it to the idea that these people are killers? I think uh, there's been, uh, a lot of it's been glossed over. People look at Tony Soprano as this lovable character in Sopranos. Uh, Marlon Brando is this noble godfather. Uh, it, it's a fiction, but yeah, I think people have bought, some people have bought into that. Some people um, are just always been fascinated with the outlaw. That's part of the American culture too, whether it's Billy the Kid, Jesse James. I mean, we've always had this fascination with people who op operate outside the law, the rogue. And in a, in a certain way, you can portray these guys as lovable rogues, but then they get a gun and shoot one another, and then you say, well, you know, there's a little bit more to it than that. How many years have you been covering this? I've been covering 
I've been with the Enquirer for 34 years. I've been writing about the mob on a regular basis for probably the last 20, 25 years. How did you get that gig? I was sent to Atlantic City uh, when the casino gambling referendum was first proposed in New, in New Jersey. It was going to cover the coming of casino gambling. And part of the debate back then was would legalized gaming, and, and even today they, they call it gaming rather than gambling, would legalized gaming bring the mob to Atlantic City? And the answer was the mob already was in Atlantic City, but it became part of what I was covering down there. And there was a famous hit in a, in a motel lounge. Uh, a judge, Eddie Helfant, was killed, uh, was first big mob hit after the casinos had opened. And then in 1980, Angelo Bruno was assassinated here in Philadelphia. So I segued from writing about the casinos in the industry into doing more and more mob stuff. And eventually I got a book deal and one of the editors said, why don't you just focus on the mob? So it kind of evolved. Have you gotten to know them over the years? Yeah, varying degrees. In, in the early days of my coverage, when Angelo Bruno was the boss, when Nicky Scarfo was the boss, I knew who these guys were. They kind of knew who I was, but there was no relationship. Um, in the mid-90s, when Joey Merlino and that group took over, and it's some of the stuff I wrote about in this book, uh, they were younger guys. They were not afraid of the media, and they seemed to like the attention. And they, they kind of embraced that whole the celebrity gangster, the John Gotti syndrome. You know, Gotti in New York was a celebrity gangster. They kind of bought into that. And I had cell phone numbers from guys. I could call them up. They would call me up. I would go to lunch occasionally, go to dinner. They wanted to know what I knew, what I was hearing. They wanted to have kind of their spin on any story. I, why, I don't know. I mean, Angelo Bruno would never care what you wrote. Nicky Scarfo might not like it. But, but these guys, it was like they wanted to have the last word. They didn't want the cops or law enforcement to have the last word. It was a, a more a street corner thing than a mafia thing. And I think that's, that's really what it was with these young guys. It was, they were the guys from 12th and Wolf. They weren't Cosa Nostra. So it was, it was a kind of a unique situation that doesn't exist anymore. They're, they're all away in jail now. And the guys that are back in charge have gone back into the shadows. You know, Angelo Bruno was, make money, don't make headlines. Don't call attention to yourself. And that's probably the smarter way to, to operate. And there's, I think they're trying to go back to that. There's still an Italian mob? In yeah, Philly? I mean, I think there's always going to be uh, the Mafia Cosa Nostra in South Philly. It's just not what it used to be. I mean, it's a smaller group of guys. They don't have their hands in that many pots. They don't have the same kind of influence within the underworld. They're not a dominant. They're not monolithic. There are other groups that are probably more dangerous, more violent, and they're making a lot more money. You know, start looking at the drug gangs. And, and compare them to the wise guys, and the wise guys look like the minor leagues. Who in terms of money, in terms of violence, in terms of what's the impact on the city. Who are the new groups? Well, you've got, you've got African-American drug gangs, you've got Asians, you've got Russians, uh, Hispanics. I, I mean, every ethnic group seems to have their own, and, and this is kind of the American melting pot. It, it always happens. It's part of the whole process. All of those groups are out there doing things in varying degrees. Nobody seems to be playing the role that the Bruno organization played in the, say, the 60s or the 70s, where the racketeering operations encompassed having influence with political figures, having influence with unions, and really impacting on everyday life. Most of these other groups primarily are involved in drugs, and it's kind of a one-note samba. Drugs, money, violence, get more money, that kind of thing. It's a little bit different. When you would have lunch with these guys, yeah. what was it like to sit over lunch and talk to them? Um, you know, I mean, it was no different than, than you and I having lunch. I mean, the, the, I think I benefited from the fact that 
I was born in South Philadelphia. I'm an Italian-American, so we have that kind of ethnic, cultural connection. And uh, some of the guys were funny. Some of them were uh, a little bit cautious. Uh, Joey Merlino was a fascinating guy. I had lunch with him several times. And the thing that I was always amazed with, I would sit and have lunch with Joey Merlino for an hour and a half. And when I left, I would realize he had told me nothing. I mean, he was very... Uh, uh, his conversation was always kind of surface. He would never let you in. And I think that was by design. He'd always ask, how's your wife, how's your kids, you know, that kind of stuff. And he would always complain about the FBI. But in terms of what he was really feeling, nothing. He was very shrewd that way. What did he want from you? What I was hearing. You know, because they're always looking for information. Is there an indictment coming? Is there an investigation going on? <clears throat> and my rule with them was, the only time I would give anything up is if it was about to appear in the paper. If I was writing a story for tomorrow's paper or for Sunday's paper, and I knew it was going to be out there, I'd say, look, here's what I'm hearing. I'm doing a story about this. You got anything to say? And then they would just say, oh, that's bull, whatever, whatever they would say. But that's the only time I would give anything up. But then we'll, we'll just be gossip, you know? And, and part of the fascinating thing with these guys back in that era was <clears throat> there was a backstory that was almost a soap opera. You know, Ralph Natelli was the boss. He was married. He had five kids, four kids, grown kids. But he was, had a girlfriend who was a contemporary of these younger guys. And they would complain about Ralph and his girlfriend. And then or they would complain about this guy's married, but he's dating that woman. It, it, was, it was really, uh, you never would write about that stuff because it had no impact on what was going on. But it was the gossip that, I guess not unlike any other industry. If you sat down with a bunch of lawyers or doctors or, or journalists, and you gossip, you'd hear all stuff about different people, your contemporaries, who you liked, who you didn't like. Same kind of stuff. Who did you like? Of these guys? Yeah. <sighs> Joey, as I said, was a very interesting guy. Um, I also was close to a guy named Georgie Borghese. And at, at one point, I think, he kind of lost sight of what this was all about and thought we, had, we were friends. And I always would tell him, look, you know, I'm doing stories, I'm going to write about you, you're not going to like some of the things I write about. And eventually, when I did one of the last books I did, he, he got really upset with that. Um, so I, those two guys, the, the, probably the guy that I like the most and still like the most and still talk to is, is Ronnie Previty, the ex-Philadelphia cop who became a wise guy, then became an FBI informant. Really a fascinating guy, one of the more intelligent and interesting guys. Now the guys, Joey and those guys would say, he's a rat, he's a punk, he gave us all up, but I don't see it that way. Previty was shrewd uh, and outwitted everybody. What was his story? He was first. He was a cop, and he told me basically he learned more about being a crook during his 12 years as a police officer than in any other time in his life. And he gravitated from that. He he left on a disability, but he said they really wanted me to leave. Ended up uh, in the Atlantic City area. Went to work for security in one of the casinos. Was ripping warehouses off and doing all kind of crazy stuff down there. Was running a bookmaking operation, loan sharking. Had his own little organization. Eventually attracted the attention of the wise guys and kind of went into their orbit and was part of the John, John Stanford faction of the mob in the mid-90s. And Stanford went to war against the Merlino faction. But Previty, Previty said he knew back then that it was over because he could see that there was no honor and loyalty. It was all treachery. Everybody was out for themselves, and he just decided that he was going to look out for number one. His only loyalty was to the face in the mirror in the morning. And so he started to be an informer for the state police and eventually agreed to wear a wire for the FBI. All the while, he's out there, you know, with these guys, doing stuff with them.
He's a phenomenal, phenomenal case and a really fascinating guy. And it's the book I wrote before this called The Last Gangster is all about Ronnie Previty and, and how that whole thing went down. Where's he now? Still, he didn't <coughs> go into the witness protection program. Uh, he's still living in the South Jersey area. I mean, and he'll pop up from time to time. And I say, I said to him, Ronnie, why don't you, why don't you move? You know, you got the wherewithal. I, I like it here. You know, I like it here. He's just, he's just wedded to the area. And uh, when the mob was was the way it was before in the pre previous generation, how did, how was it organized? I mean, it was. There's a there's a structure, boss, underboss, consigliere is the counselor, the capos and the soldiers and the associates. I mean, it's a big pyramid. But depending on the given organization, <clears throat> Angelo Bruno, when he was the boss, was kind of a laissez-faire kind of guy. He wasn't like a strict disciplinarian. People were making money, and some of that money would work its way up to him. He had his hand in a lot of different pots. But he wasn't uh, dictatorial. Same organization, Scarfo becomes the boss. It's the same structure, but Scarfo was much more demanding. Anybody making money has got to kick it back up, and anybody on the fringes is going to be assessed a street tax, so they're out there extorting guys. So I guess it was a question of your management style. You know, the structure is the same, and I think like in New York City, there are five different families. They're all structured the same way, but I think they've got a different way of conducting their business. So, Do they have employees who are on salary? Nah, not, not so much salary, but I mean, if you're a, if you're a bookmaker, they say you're running a big book, and you've got guys who bring customers. They're going to get a cut of what the, whatever they bring in from the customers. Uh, guys who bring guys to them, they're going to get a cut. I mean, it's all, it's all almost a commission kind of business. You know, whatever you generate, you're going to, some of it's going into your pocket, some of it's going to go up the line, that kind of thing. But it's not, it's not salary. It's not, you know, people have this misconception of uh, a contract killing. The mobsters don't do contract killings. I mean, the other people hire somebody. With the mob, if you, it's part of what your job is. There are guys who... They're hitmen, and if somebody needs to be whacked, they'll be told they got to whack this guy. They don't get extra money for doing it. It's just what they do. Were the people you dealt with you were afraid of? No. Uh, no, the one problem I had was when John Stanford was the boss, he put a contract on me, but I didn't know it at the time, so it never happened. I, I was never afraid. I was always conscious of who they were and cautious. I mean... You know, when you're dealing with these guys, and it is a macho world, I mean, it's, so you can't write about them, and then when they call you and say they want to talk to you, you can't say, oh, no, I don't want to talk to you. You can't do that. you got no credibility. Because I remember distinctly, uh, I had been writing stories about Previty back in the mid-'90s, and an ex-cop who was now a wise guy, blah, blah, blah. I had never met him, and he called me up one time out of the blue, and he said, you seem to have an undue interest in my life. I'd like to meet you. Now, I don't know who this guy is. I just know his reputation. So I said, all right, I'll meet with you, but it's got to be during the day and in a public place. I said, fine. So he said, all right, come down to this restaurant where I hang out. So I, would, I told my editors, look, I'm going to go see this guy. If, I don't hear, if you don't hear from me in about three or four hours, you know, send somebody to look. But here's where I'm going. Here's who I'm meeting. It worked out fine. But, so I was conscious of that. I don't want to take risks. But at the same time, I couldn't not go and meet with these guys if I'm going to write about them or else you're a punk and then you got no credibility, you know, so. John Stanford took a hit out on you? Yeah, yeah. What'd you do? Well, I didn't know about it. See, here's, and you got to remember with John Stanford, <coughs> and a lot of this is in his book too. John Stanford was born and raised in Sicily, came to America as an adult, made member of the Sicilian Mafia, becomes part of the Bruno organization, and then he goes away to jail, comes back after all the turmoil, and becomes the boss because they need somebody to put the thing back together. This is in the mid, 
early, early 90s. Now, I start writing about him. And he's got a food distribution center in Grace Ferry down in South Philly. And so, you know, whenever you're going to write about somebody, you, could, you call them up. So I would call the food distribution center, Continental Foods. I said, this is George Anastasia. I'm doing a story Sunday on Mr. Stanford. I'd like to talk to him. Boom, they'd hang up the phone. And apparently he got annoyed with that. You know, because he didn't, you know, as I said, he got that Sicilian mentality. And in Sicily, they kill judges, they kill prosecutors. If you're not with them, you're against them. That's, so he apparently told one of his guys, find out where this Anastasia lives, get some hand grenades and throw them in the window. Now, that never happens. Stanford and his guys get indicted, they get convicted in 1995. Now, one of, the guy who was supposed to do this to me, he gets convicted and he raises his hand. He wants to cooperate to get out from underneath the 30-year sentence he's going to get. And he starts being debriefed by the FBI. And when he's being debriefed, he's got to tell him everything he was involved in. And he tells him the story of how he was supposed to come after me. Again, I don't know any of this is going on. I get a call one day. He's calling me from prison. His name is Sergio. And he says, I just want to let you know there's some stuff going to come out about you, and it was nothing personal. And then he tells me, we were supposed to get some grenades and throw them in your window. And I said, Sergio, I got a wife and two kids. Grenades come through my window. It's, you know, it's, it's very personal. He said, well, by the time we got the grenades, we were so caught up in the war with Joey Merlino that we stopped looking for you. So, I mean, I got a pass not knowing it. And, uh, and it didn't happen. And, and I think it was an aberration. As I said, Nicky Scarfo never liked me, but I don't think he would ever think of doing anything to me because it would create more problems than it would solve. And with the younger guys, they kind of liked the attention. And they also realized, you know, you don't go after a cop, you don't go after a reporter. Where's it going to get you? It's going to get more attention than you need. Even the knuckleheads realize that. There's no point in any of that. How'd you break the news to your wife? Uh, well, it was a very, I mean, it's kind of a, I get the call, so I know this is coming out. And I'm trying to figure out how we at the paper can write about this. I can't write about it, but I want, and then something that happened in my, in my personal, my father passed away at the same time. Um, you know, it was totally unrelated, but he had been sick. He passes away, and uh, this document's floating around. I get the document, but I don't do anything with it. And I get a call from the Daily News, and they've got the document, the Philadelphia Daily News. And I, this is kind of a sore spot with me, because I say to the reporter who I, who I know, look, my father's being buried tomorrow. Can you hold the story one day? I'm not going to do a story, but wait a day. No, they don't wait a day. So the day my father was buried, there's a headline in the Daily News that I was the target of a mob hit. Now, so, I, I mean, I had to tell my wife all this was going to happen because it was going to come out. So, you know, my wife and my kids are pretty good about it. They, uh, they understand what I'm telling you. It was an aberration. It didn't happen. And, you know. Could that have kind of helped your credibility as a reporter, like you're the real thing? Well, I, I, you know, I guess. I, I, yeah, I, I, in, a, in a bizarre kind of way, sure. If the guy wants to kill you, you must, he must take you seriously. I don't know. Um, yeah, I suppose. But, you know, it, 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 it goes into that whole macho posturing that's all a part of this, you know. Yeah. You grew up in South Philly? I was born in South Philadelphia. We moved to New Jersey when I was about four years old. But I have relatives there. We always, we're going back and forth. I, I know South Philly. I'm, I'm a product of it, and I know it. Were you aware of mobsters at the time? Well, being an Italian-American, I mean, you know, in this area, you're aware of it. You, you have this perception, and then the godfather comes along, and it kind of, reinforces that perception. And, but it wasn't until I started writing about it for the newspaper that I got a, a full appreciation of what it was about. And, and it wasn't this glamorous Mario Puzo, Men of Honor kind of stuff. It was a lot of thuggery and 
you know, they were crooks, they were robbers, they were gamblers, that kind of stuff. Did the Joey Merlino generation uh, learn to be mobsters from the movies? You know, you can, you can make the argument that the Godfather movies became training films for these guys. But, I mean, if you really want to get serious about what you're seeing here, by the third generation, by the Joey Merlino's generation, my generation, he's a little bit younger than me, but if we could say that. I mean, I'm looking at my grandfather, my father, and me. Angelo Bruno is in my grandfather's generation. They come to America, a lot of doors are closed, not a lot of opportunities because they're Italians. Some guys make a choice, it's the wrong choice, they become gangsters. But they, Bruno in another time, another place, probably could have been the CEO of a company. I mean, he had that, he was intelligent, he was sophisticated, he knew how to run a business, you know. But you take second generation, third generation, the best and the brightest in the Italian-American community are now doctors, lawyers, and educators. And so you're scraping the bottom of the gene pool with the guys that become wise guys. And that contributes to, I think, why there's been a demise. One, it's much more sophisticated law enforcement. And two, the quality, if you will, of, of the, the characters that are getting involved is not the same. You know, I, and I get into this argument a lot with Italian-American groups because a lot of them have this perception that I write about this stuff, I'm reinforcing the stereotype that just because our names end in a vowel, we're, we're all gangsters. And they complain about The Sopranos. And I, I love The Sopranos. I think it was very well done when it was done. And, and the, what I would say to anybody when we have this argument, and I'm, I don't expect to win the argument because they've got their own mindset, but I would say any ethnic group that could give America Antonin Scalia and Camille Paglia in the same generation doesn't have to worry about Tony Soprano being its poster boy. You know, we know who we are. And, and now, and I still have, you know, the debate continues. And now, another thing I point out is one of the highest offices in the land is the U.S. Supreme Court. There are nine seats. Two of them are Italian-Americans. So where are we being discriminated against? Where are the doors? It doesn't exist anymore. We have the opportunities. Just go do it and stop whining and complaining about, oh, woe is us. We're being picked upon because we're not. I mean, that's where I come from. I don't expect to convince a lot of different groups that perceive the opposite, but that's, that's the way I look at it. How did the cops finally get to the mob, and, and why did it take so long? Uh, a lot of, it was a lot of different things. One, that whole code of silence, omerta, um, that started to evaporate. I mean, guys were becoming made guys, but when they got jammed up, they agreed to cooperate. Because to them, like Angelo Bruno, like him, love him, hate him, whatever. I think Bruno, Gam Carlo Gambino, those guys, the mafia was a way of life. But for the next generation and the guys that Scarfo and Gotti brought in, the mafia was a way to make business, make money. That's what it was. It was a business, not a way of life. And so when they get jammed up, these guys, and the mafia is not a way of life but a business, they make a business decision. How do I cut my losses? And they become cooperators. Now they start cooperating, and now the government's got the wherewithal to protect these guys. Witness protection disappear here. And there. So guys testified against the mob, which you would never do in the past. And they survived. Not only did they survive, a guy like Sammy Gravano gets a book deal. So, you know, th there are ways now to get past it. And, and, and I think that's contributed, coupled with the RICO law, coupled with very sophisticated electronic surveillance. I mean, every one of the major cases that I've written about in the last 10 years, and a lot of them are mentioned in this book, were built around listening devices and these guys talking. And when you're on trial in a, in a criminal case, and there are tapes of you talking about extortion, gambling, and murder. There's not much you can do about it. The defense attorney said you can't cross-examine a tape. 
there's John Stanford sitting at that table, and here's his voice saying, we're going to get that guy, cut his tongue out, and send it to his wife. I mean, how do you cross-examine that tape? What do you, or how do you spin that in a positive way? And that's what buried these guys, you know, all of that stuff. How did the FBI get people to agree to wear wires in the first place? Well, originally, I mean, in the original cases, it wasn't so much wires as they would bug a room, bug a location, bug a telephone. But then, you know, as more and more of these guys succeeded, they were able to get guys to wear wires. And Previty was, Previty, when I talked to him afterwards, said that those two years wearing a wire were probably two of the most exciting years of his life. He got off on that. I mean, he got off on getting over on these guys and dealing with the jeopardy every day. And I think that's one of the reasons, I've said this to him too, I think one of the reasons he doesn't leave the area is he knows he can't go back to being a crook anymore because he got a good deal, and if he does anything wrong, he'll go to jail. But he still wants that adrenaline rush that he used to get, and he gets it by staying in the area so that he knows that every day when he goes out on the streets, he's got to be aware of where he is, who's, and I think he likes that. I mean, some guys get off on that. I don't know. But anyway, I mean, it's evolved from wiretaps and room bugs to guys wearing body wires and making recordings, and Previty was the prime example of that. Did you listen to the recordings? Well, they played a lot of them in court, yeah. And, and in fact, a lot of the books that I've written, I mean, all the books I've written except for one novella have been nonfiction. And one of the problems you have in writing nonfiction is you don't have dialogue. Well, I never had the problem with this organization because there always was a transcript of a meeting, a conversation. One of the books I wrote was called, wrote was called The Goodfellow Tapes, and it was built around the two years of a bug being in a lawyer's office in Camden during the Stanford investigation. And you had all manner of conversation. So it wasn't a question of what were those guys thinking. You just go look, read the tapes, listen to the tapes, read the transcripts. Here's what they were thinking because they're saying it right here. So yeah, I've, I've had access to a lot of that stuff. It's been... But how were they able to operate for decades having businesses that everybody kind of knew were mob businesses and, and the FBI didn't Well, you know, I mean, it, there's a lot of different there's a lot of different explanations for that, and part of it is in the Bruno era and during that period, they were much more secretive, much, much more structured. Uh, part of it was during Bruno's period, the primary businesses were gambling and loan sharking, and in the greater scheme of things, law enforcement didn't care that much about that. Part of it is over time, the FBI got more access to wise guys, had more informants, and you basically do what you know, and they knew, knew, they knew more about that organization, so they were able to build cases, whereas 20 years earlier, they didn't. It's, it's comparable now to, you know, you talk to law enforcement guys about Russian organized crime, and part of the problem from a media perspective is Russian organized crime doesn't have a face. There's not a John Gotti. There's not a Nicky Scarfo. They're out there. They're doing all kinds of stuff. But from a law enforcement perspective, I talked to some guys in, in the Organized Crime Bureau, and there's a, there's a big Russian community in northeast Philadelphia off Bustleton Avenue. And this guy said to me, trying to figure out the Russians today is like trying to figure out the Sicilians back in the 1920s. They're part of an ethnic group where even the law-abiding members of the community don't necessarily trust law enforcement. We don't have any informants. And there are language and cultural barriers that we haven't broken down yet. So I think the Russian mob, until it becomes more Americanized, is going to benefit from all of that. That's what happened with the mafia, Cosa Nostra. They became, as they became more Americanized, they were more and more susceptible to law enforcement. That's what happened. That's the way it played out. Now, if somebody buys this book, Mob Files, what do they get? 
what they're going to get is, this is an anthology of stuff I've written over the years for the Enquirer. So it's, it's snippets. There's some magazine pieces, some profiles, some kind of uh, uh, funny stories about what was going on as it was happening. It's, it, it's an overview from a journalistic perspective rather than the other books that I've written have been you know, a narrative from beginning to end one story with a lot of characterization and what was going on. This is just bits and pieces. In fact, I had a complaint from a guy. A guy called me up and he said, this was bizarre because I thought everybody knew it was an anthology. He calls me up and he said, George, I liked all your other books, but I can't follow this one. I don't, I said, every story stands on its own. Don't try to make it connect, you know what I mean? So that's what it is. This is kind of, and I was, I was happy that Camino Books agreed to do this because it, it puts everything in one place, but it's all the things I've written over the years that kind of captured and a lot of the stuff that's in here were, served as a jumping off point for the books that I did. You, you, you'll see some of that if you look in there. How did you decide what order to put them in? Because some things are like a decade apart side by it side. Was, uh, we tried to go with kind of themes. And I think the, the first, first thing is kind of profiles of, big, of the bigger players. And then there's second part is about kind of street life. And the third part is about the women that were involved. And the fourth part focuses on what we were talking about all the different wiretaps and body wires and different conversations. We, we probably could have done a couple more parts. Maybe we'll expand it or whatever, but, but that's the way we did it. Right How now. many columns have you written or articles have you written over the years? You know, I couldn't begin to tell you. I, w I, would, I would say I probably write on average 150 to 200 stories a year, you know, some long, some short, depending on what's going on. And most of those are about the mob. Half of them are about the mob. So over the years, I mean, even say 100 a year for 20 years, that's 2,000 stories. There's still that much to write about the mob? Well, I've been spending more time writing about the drug gangs in the last couple of years than the wise guys. But yeah, there's still stuff. I mean, there were two major investigations that are unfolding now. One in Delaware County called Operation Delco Nostra. One involving an illegal bookmaking operation at the Borgata Casino Hotel in Atlantic City. Both of them tied to the mob. Both of them are being watched by the feds who are building another racketeering case, and they'll probably adopt some of those two investigations into a, a broader case. How are the Pennsylvania casinos doing with regard to the mob? You know, that remains to be seen. I, 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 people say, you got to watch, you got to watch. I haven't seen any sign of it yet, although the whole flap around Mr. De Naples uh, has mob overtones. I haven't seen anything definitive on that, but it all goes back to his background and who he's connected with. And supposedly, one of the biggest mob figures in Wilkesboro, William D'Elia, Big Billy D'Elia, has been providing information about all of that. And, and that, some of that's already come out. If somebody wants to read your articles nowadays, where do they find them? Well, if you go on to, to philly.com, go to the Enquirer, put my name in, it'll probably kick out. And I've also started, started a, uh, a new feature. Every week we're doing a, like a four-minute video about, it's called Mob Scene. And it focuses in either on something that's going on right now, a story of the Brigada, Delco Nostro, a black drug gang, or it's a look back. This week there's a piece on Nicky Scarfo and his reign as mob boss. So we're trying to put that together and, and expand the multimedia kind of stuff. That's the future, I guess. Tell me about the section of the book on women. You know what? Everybody asked about that. And it's, unfortunately, when I, when I started to gather the stories, I realized I didn't have that many because it's... Uh, it's a lot harder, I think, to get access and, and also even more difficult to get them to, to kind of open up. But there's one story in, in, there was a magazine piece I did about Frankie Martinez's wife, Maria. Frankie Martinez was the underboss during the Stanford era. And Maria was kind enough to just kind of tell me about her life. And uh, 
I think that is really the prototype of what it's like to be married, married to the mob. It's not always glamorous. It, a lot of times she didn't know if he was coming home. Uh, he ended up being shot, shot once, stabbed once, nearly killed twice. And it's not about, if she would laugh about how people think, oh, your husband's the underboss, you're rolling in dough. A lot of times they were struggling to make their payments on their mortgage or whatever. So it was, I find w when you do get to talk to the women, you get a much more realistic assessment of what it's all about. I can remember when, when uh, Previty testified and all these young guys were convicted, and I had lunch with two of the wives who were convicted, and their husbands were saying, Previty's a rat, Previty's this, Previty's The wives knew. They said, nah, he won. He got over. He's out there doing what he wants to do, and our husbands are in jail. That's the bottom line in all of this. It wasn't about who's macho, who's... They, you know, they cut right to the chase, to the heart of it. The reality is, our husbands are away in jail, and he's walking scot-free. So who's the winner, who's the loser, and all of that? They don't need to go into this macho, oh, stand-up guy, all of that. They didn't see it that way. They, they're more reality-based. So that's why I like, when I can, to talk to wives, girlfriends, whatever, and, and, and it gives you a different perspective. Who's talked to you? Well, Maria Martinez talked to me. The wives of a couple of these guys talked to me on background, so I don't want to use their names. Uh, Brenda Coletti, she's featured in here. Her husband, Phil, was a hitman for Stanford. Uh, I had great access to her and her husband at one point, especially her. She told some really interesting stories. And, and, uh, and then uh, there's another piece in there, I think the, the wife of Danny Didone, ex-wife of Danny Didone, Annette Didone, again, talking about the life and what it was supposed to be and how her husband was fascinated with Ralph Natale, the mob boss, wanted to be with him. And all she saw once he got involved was less and less money, more and more bills, and what is it all about? You know, it was so. Those are the kind of, and, and then the, I think the only other, if I'm remembering correctly, the only other story in the, the women's section here has to do with a woman who was involved with a Jamaican uh, cocaine dealer in Philadelphia. It's a tr very troubling story, but again, it's from the woman's perspective. And uh, whenever, to the, to the extent and the degree that I can get that kind of access, I, I try to do that because um, it, it gives, I think, a more human touch to all the events. Did, did the wives know all the businesses their husbands no, were in? Not. I mean, it varies. Some wives know everything. Some wives know nothing. Some don't want to know. You know, Maria Martinez used to joke about that scene in Goodfellas where the wife says to, to Henry Hill, Henry Hill says, how much money do you want? And she says, about that much. Maria said, that, you know, that's, it's not like that. You don't, so. Uh, the, is that Robin Bird? Is that the woman? Yeah, Robin Bird, right. It's the about. woman who was involved with the Jamaican... You say here she, she uh, ran some stores in North Philadelphia. She stocked the stores with milk and bread and candy and crack cocaine. The stores generated $10,000 to $30,000 a day in drug sales each. One New Year's Eve, in a store across from a housing project in North Philadelphia, customers stood in line down the street and around the block. Yeah. The, the cops didn't know about that? That's the drug underworld I'm talking about. I mean, the neighborhoods where this kind of stuff is going on, Sometimes they do, sometimes the cops, sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Sometimes they don't have the wherewithal to do anything about it. You know, if this is a legitimate neighborhood grocery store, people waiting in line to get in. If, you know, these stores are not big. So, yeah, you could, all right, they're waiting to get milk, whatever. Yeah, it, you can spin it. Robin was a very intelligent woman, hooked up with this 
Jamaican crack kingpin, and he was able to use her to manipulate the neighborhoods and the system in Philadelphia because she was a Philadelphian, buying property, setting up stores, that kind of thing. Was, she was very good at that, very astute businesswoman. Did you ever talk to any of the children of the mobsters? Uh, well, children. I mean, Nicky Scarfo Jr. is the child of Nicky, but I talked to him as an adult. And is he he's, in the business? Yeah, he's, he's been away two or three times. He's going to get, probably going to get indicted again. Um, no, I don't think I've, and I, you know, that's something else. I mean, where is that going to take you, really? I mean, and it, 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 there's a certain line I think you got to say, I don't, I don't have a right to go there. Just because they're a wise guy, I don't have the right, if there's, if there's a lawyer I'm writing about, I don't have a right to go talk to his kids unless there's some relevance to it. It's the same thing with this. I don't, I don't see the, and, unless somebody, unless a mother came forward and said, look, we're living this horrible life because of my gangster husband, we want to tell you our story, then maybe, but. Absent that, I, I think you got to have you got to respect privacy at some level for all these people. The cops ever talk to you? All the time, but I mean, they they talk to me because we're kind of doing the same kind of stuff. But I, I, in a lot of ways, it's like the wise guys. I mean, I'm not going to be giving up stuff to the cops unless it's going to go in the paper because I got to protect where I'm getting things from. It's just you protect your sources, you know. So I'll say to them, you know, I'm hearing this. What are you hearing? And it's you know, you're playing information gathering, that kind of stuff. But I don't, I don't ever want to be in a position where the cops are using me to make a case. That's not, that's not my role in any of this. And, and, and I think the one way I can maintain credibility and, and justify not getting whacked is, you know, I don't want to be on either side of this game. I got to be here. Your family ever think maybe you ought to be assigned to a different beat for a change? When that, when that stuff came out with Stanford, some people were, but I, I I kind of explained it all, and as I said, it was an aberration. Yeah. Who's in jail right now? Joey Merlino's in jail. He's coming out in 2011. There were six other guys convicted with him. Most of them have come home already. Borghese comes home in 2012, I think. John Stanfa is doing five life terms. He's never going to come home. Nicky Scarfo's doing 55 years. He's already in his late 70s. I think he's not going to come home. Most of the guys around Stanford, the major guys, they're in jail for extensive periods of time. So all told, there must be 20, 25 guys. Where are they in jail? They're scattered all over the federal prison system. Usually these guys don't end up in the same spot. Scarfo's in Atlanta. Stanford, the last time I checked, was in Leavenworth. Mer Merlino is in Marion, Illinois. Borghese's in West Virginia. They're all over the place. What's life like for them behind bars? It's not like Goodfellas. It's not like they're in there cooking and doing that kind of stuff. I mean, they, I talked to a guy who just got home a little while ago. The, the, the wise guys within the prison system kind of grouped together. You'll be in there with wise guys from New York and Chicago, whatever. They all kind of hang out together, and, and to the extent that there's any kind of social life, that's what it revolves around. I mean, it, apparently, and I would hope, would hope to never experience this, that the prison system is really uh, enclaves of different groups, and it can be a dangerous kind of situation. So. You know, they try to stay. It's almost like uh, the herds. You stay with your herd kind of thing. Are you able to talk to the people in prison? I, occasionally. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll write a letter, see if I can get a visitation or a phone call, that kind of stuff. But I don't, I don't do a lot of that because uh, there's more stuff going on in the streets right now than worrying about what's going on inside the prisons. Are, are they able to keep in touch with their organization when they're in prison? Yeah. I mean, the most bizarre thing to me is my understanding is that there are certain federal prisons now where these guys can get email 
access. They're able to use computers and email people. So yeah, there's, there's a lot of back and forth communication. And they have the right to use the phone. I mean, they got to understand that it's probably being recorded. Be careful what you're saying. And they have vis visitation, that kind of stuff. In the Del Delco Nostra investigation I'm telling you about, one of the allegations is that uh, a mob associate from Delaware County would periodically visit George Borghese in West Virginia and they would discuss the bookmaking and gambling operation that this guy was kind of being Borghese's caretaker. So yeah, they, they can do that. What happens when Joey Merlino gets out of prison in 2011? I think Joey will go back to being Joey. I don't think there's, there's any problem with the guys that are out there now. I mean, he'll, a lot of these guys, they'll say, well, they, you know, they're going to move, they're going to do this, they're going to do that. But they always seem to come back here and they always seem to go back to doing what they do because that's all they know. And that's who they are. You know, I mean, that defines them. And, and in a lot of ways, it's sad when you think about it, but that's who they are. And they can't be anybody else because then they don't have any status, any standing. Are any of them who uh, get out of prison uh, or, or testify for the mob and make a deal and then they just get a regular nine-to-five job? There were, there's been a few guys that I know that have come out and not gone back into the life and, and yeah. And there's also been guys who've gone into the witness protection program and have turned their life around. Phil Leonetti, I think, is a prime example of that. I know a little bit about what he's doing and he's got a legitimate business and his, I think his kid went to college. He really took advantage of the opportunity, you know, there are no second acts. He got a second act. Who is he? Pardon? Who is he? Phil Leonetti? Leonetti. Oh, I'm sorry. Phil Leonetti was Nicky Scarfo's nephew and underboss and admitted to, I think, 10 murders and then became a cooperating witness and was one of the best witnesses that I've ever seen testify. And he basically has, he got, I think he was sentenced to 40 years and he ended up getting his sentence reduced to five and a half, got out and has turned his life around. Another guy named George Fresalone was uh, in the Newark branch of the Philadelphia mob, wore a body wire for the state police, recorded all kind of conversations, including his own making ceremony. He wore a wire to the making ceremony. He became a cooperator. He got relocated, was out in California, and I, I can say this now because he got involved in California in working for a, a maintenance company. They, they cleaned offices at night and and then he ended up buying that company. And he called me from Hollywood one time. He says, you're never going to believe where I am. I'm in Cher's house. I'm cleaning her marble floors. And he had a, a, a thriving business. He had a, a son in, co in junior college, another son in high school. And uh, he had a heart attack and died. I mean, it was sad because he, he was another guy who had taken the opportunity to make things right and make things work. And he was succeeding at that. Uh, Fresalone and, and Leonetti are the two I know of. There are probably others. Is it a Troubling to people that these are people who committed multiple murders and yet they walk free because they testified? Well, when you talk to the prosecutors and they'll tell you, you know, swans don't swim in sewers. If you're going to build a case involving a conspiracy, you need a conspirator to help make the case. And so you make a deal with whoever you need to make a deal with to get the other guys. That, that, that's been the modus operandi of almost every one of these cases. There's always an informant or two. Would you tell a couple stories from your book, like the story of Sally Testa? Salvi? Yeah. Salvi Testa. Yeah. Salvi Testa was, I mean, you got to understand the dynamics of this. Angelo Bruno gets killed. He's succeeded by Phil Chicken Man Testa, who was Salvi Testa's father. And then, and then, and then Phil Testa kind of brings Scarfo into a position of prominence in, in the Philadelphia underworld. And then Phil Testa gets killed. 
in March of 1981. In fact, Springsteen, the song Atlantic City, when they said he killed the chicken man last night, that's who he's referring to, Phil Testa. Blew up the chicken man. Right, yeah. they blew up the chicken man. In fact, they did. That's what happened. He was walking into his house, and there was a bomb had been planted underneath his porch, and it literally blew him through the front door of his house. So anyway, Scarfo becomes the boss after Testa's killed, and Salvi Testa becomes a capo in the organization, and is kind of leading the charge for Scarfo in a war with another faction. Scarfo's in Atlantic City, Salvi's in Philadelphia, and he's a mafia prince. I mean, he's the son of Phil Testa, and he's a capo, and he's a really good-looking, charismatic kid, and he almost loses an arm in an ambush during this mob war, and he, and he is involved in a lot of hits. He's, he kills two or three guys who he believes were behind his own father's murder, and he's out there for the Scarfo organization. Now, three or four years later, Scarfo, being the paranoid mob boss that he is, starts to see Salvi Testa as a threat. And he orders Salvi killed. And as an excuse, he uses the, the excuse that it was, it, it's so almost medieval. Salvi had been engaged to Maria Merlino, who happens to be young Joey's sister. But at that point, her father, Chucky, was Scarfo's underboss. You need charts to follow all this. Anyway, Salvi, the mafia prince, is engaged to the daughter of the underboss, and there's going to be this big wedding. And at the last minute, he breaks off the engagement. And Scarfo used that as an excuse that he embarrassed the family, he embarrassed Mr. Merlino, and, and that's why we have him killed. In fact, he had him killed because he was paranoid and jealous. And, and within the organization, I remember talking to guys after this happened, I mean, Scarfo was a very violent individual. I mean, th th what I used to say was Angelo Bruno ruled the mob with it, an iron fist, but covered it with a velvet glove. Scarfo saw no need for the glove. I mean, that's the kind of guy he was. Well, when he had Salvi killed, the guys in his organization knew if he could kill Salvi after all Salvi did for him, he'll kill anybody. And, and that's what started the destabilization of the organization. And as a result of that, two guys, Tommy Del Giorno and Nick Caramondi, became the first two major cooperators in that era. And they were the key witnesses in the all the prosecutions that brought Scarfo and that organization down. And, and the, the piece in this book is a, a kind of a profile of Salvi Testa that comes, I think it comes out of the first book I did, Blood and Honor. It's an excerpt from that book. But the people who were assigned the job of killing him tracked him for months. Yeah, I mean, that's, how, it, how it was, <laughs> because, you know, all of these guys, there are certain moves that you make. You know, you, you don't just go walk up to a guy and shoot a guy. You set it up. You, you got to get him comfortable. You get him someplace where he's got his guard down. And Salvi was always cautious. Because, and Caramondi says this, I think, in that chapter. Salvi was picking up the vibe. He knew he had problems. You know? So whenever, whenever he would meet somebody, instead of shaking hands, he would give him a hug. You know? But what he was really doing was patting them down to see if they were packing. You know? that kind of, and he would have a meeting scheduled. He wouldn't show up. Or he'd change the location. He was very, very cautious. And they tracked him for, I think, seven, eight months before they finally his, they got his best friend to set him up. And that's the way they do it. And, and, and Caramondi would say that, you know. They get your best friend to set you up. And the best friend said, I'm having a problem, a dispute over this bookmaking thing. Could you come settle it for me? Meet me at this candy store on Passchunk Avenue. And when he shows up, Wayne Grandy is waiting there, gets a gun and shoots Salvi in the back of the head. Then they wrap his body in the rug and they take it over to Jersey and they dump it. But that was, that, it, it, in a lot of ways, that was the beginning of the end of the Scarfo organization. That murder was a seminal event in the destabilization of the, of the crime family. Was he still working for Scarfo at this yeah, time? Yeah, I mean, he, the yeah, sure. Months? He's still working, but he knows he's got a problem. I think Caramondi mentioned they were having some affair at Palumbo's, and Salvi didn't get invited. 
I mean, that was, they were all little, you know, it's like the old, trying to figure out the Kremlin and Russia, you know, you look for little signs. Who's at the table, who's not at the table. Salvi was picking up all of that. He knew he had a problem. But I think he couldn't really believe that Scarfo would kill him after all he had done for Scarfo. You know. Do they still have making ceremonies? Yeah, I mean, trying to think. With, according to, I mean, I haven't talked to anybody who's been to one recently, but there's been indications that there have been certain guys have been made following certain mob murders downtown in South Philly. Yeah, I mean, that's just a formality. Uh, but yeah, I think some guys still aspire to that. You know, get the button. How much money is involved? Depends on what you're doing. I mean, a guy like Previty was a big money maker, whether he was with the mob or not with the mob. You know, he was an earner. There are certain guys who know how to make money. There are other guys who only know how to live off extorting and shaking people down. And that's one of the things that bothered Previty. He said most of these guys are, are common thieves. I mean, they don't, they don't get the... He was, like, taken aback by that. They don't get the business. They don't understand. You know, you set up a bookmaking operation, and Joey was notorious, Joey Molino was notorious for betting with bookmakers and collecting when he won and not paying when he lost. Well, that undermines the whole economy of bookmaking. You can't have that, you know? And, and whereas Previty knew you run a book, and over the long haul, you're going to make a lot of money, but you've got to run it legitimately. You've got to pay off the winnings. You know, you collect. And, and the, the beauty of running a good book, and Karamadi explained this to me better than anybody. Gambling is part of it, but loan sharking is the other component. Gamblers are going to go into debt, and they're going to have to satisfy that debt. And so a guy owes you... 10 grand from a bookmaking operation, and he doesn't have the money. And you're the mob, so he knows he's got to pay you. And you say to him, well, go see so-and-so, he'll lend you the money, and then you can pay me. So that's a mob book, uh, loan shark. You go see the loan shark, you borrow the 10 grand, and you give it to me. Now you owe the loan shark $10,000. And the way that's set up, I never understood this until Karamanda explained it. He said, you give it, say you give it for three points. Three points means 3%. So every, and it's a 10-week loan. Now you've borrowed $10,000. And every week, you got to pay three points. you got to pay me $300. At the end of 10 weeks, I've got $3,000, and you still owe me $10,000. Now, if you don't have the $10,000, we'll do another 10 weeks. And over the course of a year, I'm going to collect $15,600 from you on the 10 grand, and you're still going to owe me the 10 grand. And that $15,600 I've collected, I've put out as loan shark money to other people. And that's the economy. And that's what Previty understood, and it's what Angelo Bruno understood. Let it, just let it evolve, let it expand, and you'll make money. Whereas Scarfo was grab all the money now, shake people down, threaten them, kill them. I want all the money I want it today. Are there new businesses that the mob has gone into? With the coming of casino gambling in Atlantic City, they were around the fringes in the bar business, in the linen services, trash hauling. I mean, not for nothing was Tony Soprano a solid waste management consultant. The mob's always been in trash. It's, it's that kind of stuff. New businesses, you know, you, the pump and dump stocks, you've seen them, some wise guys and some of that stuff. Uh, you know. What is that? The penny stocks where you, you get, a, uh, you get a, a stock that you're going to tout, and you've got four or five guys working in a room with phones, and they're, they're calling up all potential investors and trying to get them to buy, and all outlandish offers, and you pump the stock way up through some fraudulent finagling, and then you sell all your stock, and it collapses, and the real investors are left... It's pump and dump. You pump it, and then you dump it. I mean, they've been involved in some of that stuff. Uh, but, I mean, tr traditional guys are gambling, loan sharking, stolen property, that kind of stuff. 
They're involved with unions? Not as much as they used to be. And I think that, again, goes back to the feds with the monitoring system they had. The, the U.S. attorney's offices around the country have done a really good job in, in busting up mob-connected unions. Used to be traditionally the bartender's union, the laborer's union, uh, the teamsters, and the longshoremen. Now, there's still some big cases in New York involving the docks, the dock of Newark and the dock of New York, and wise guys with their hooks in the different unions. But everything is under much more intense scrutiny because the feds know the game now. They know how guys operate. Uh, you mentioned a couple of legitimate businesses like hotel laundry and, and yeah. trash removal. Is, is there anything different in the way a mob-run company that does that operates than a Well, I mean, they, in terms of the way they deal with their competitors, yeah. I mean, if, 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 if they want a trash route and you want the trash route, it's not uh, the, the, who bids the best. It's you don't want to bid on that because if you do, your trucks are going to get blown up. You know, it's, it, so That's in that respect. Yeah, to a degree. I mean, you know, and, and as a result, you who need the service are going to pay more because it's not a competitive bidding situation. It's that kind of stuff. You know, it's, it's a little more subtle, but, they, you know, they still try to strong arm their way into different things, yeah. Have their gambling operations been hurt because there are casinos now or, or lot legalized lotteries? Previty tells me no. And he even says legalized sports betting is not going to hurt the mob because... Most gamblers don't have the money they gamble with. And in a casino, you can't gamble on credit. Whereas with the wise guys, you know, you're calling in to your bookie and you're placing bets, 10 grand, this, this, that. And at the end of a month or the end of two months or the end of a season, you settle up. So it's all on the come, so to speak. Whereas at a casino, sports betting, you put the money down, you place your bet, but you got to have the money to put it down. So his, his take on it is that sports betting will simply create more customers for the mob because more people will get exposed to it and when they don't have the money they'll go to a mob bookmaker instead of a casino. In your article about Robin Bird, the, the woman who was in the Jamaican right. um, crack business, um, you, you say uh, even now a decade later Bird, then 37, this column is from 1997, struggles to put it into words, unless you're in the arena you really can't understand how it works. Yeah. Do you, do you think you understand how it works? No, I don't. No, no I mean a little bit because I've talked to these people. But no, I mean, wh what's the mindset? How do you how do you get caught into that? Is it the money? Is it the fear? Is it the status? I mean, I think all of those things came into play for her. She fell in love with this guy. She says before she realized who he was, and before she knew it, she had been sucked into that life. And then it became, all right, I'm good at this. I can make some money. And then it became, I don't like what I'm doing, but how am I going to survive this? So it, it, all of that stuff comes into play. Uh, and I don't, I don't think, you know, it's easy to condemn all of this stuff. Say, oh, they're, they're all thugs, they're all... But the one thing I've learned is that everybody has their own different perspective on what they're doing and why they're doing it. And it's not any different than any other walk of life. It really isn't. I mean, there are wise guys that you would like to sit down with and have a drink with, and there's wise guys you want to run away from. There are lawyers who I could sit down and have a drink with. There are others I don't want to spend any time with. It's, and, and all of that human dynamics comes into play no matter what. And so y you look at somebody like Robin Bird and you say, you know, she knew that was wrong. She's dealing crack. It's a horrible thing. And she, yeah, she did. All of that's true. But there was something else going on. And she made some choices and she ended up in a situation where finally she said, how am I getting out of this? And that's when she, when she became a witness. What more is there to be written about the mom? Well, you know, I think we don't know what they're going to do next. Not necessarily 
the wise guys that I write about, but there's always going to be an underworld, and there's always going to be gangs out there doing what they're doing. And I mean, one of the things I've been trying to focus more on was a, a fellow reporter, uh, Maria Panaritis. She and I were working some stories involving some drug gangs, and in the midst of that, a wise guy in South Philly got killed. His name was Johnny Casasanto, and he was a low-level wise guy. But on the day he got killed, I got sent down to his neighborhood. The Daily News had somebody down there, a couple radio stations and a couple TV stations. They're all there. And I had a story in the paper the next day. It's headlines and everything. And then when I go to work on Monday, this happened on the weekend, Maria says to me, you know what? You look at the drug guys we've been trying to write about and look at what they've done in terms of the murders, the violence, and the money, and there's nothing been written about them. Why does this guy get all this attention? What, what are we as the media doing? And she was right. I mean, and so I'm trying to focus more on the, the drug underworld because I think in the greater scheme of things, the thing that's having a negative impact on the city of Philadelphia, the, the violence goes back to the drugs. And, and you've got to start looking at that, and you've got to start paying attention to these guys and giving them the same kind of attention that we would give to a Nicky Scarfo or a Joey Molino. You've got to shine a light on them. People have got to be aware of who they are. And, and I don't have the same access uh, at the street level, obviously, because I'm from another world. And I also, I don't think I know enough about that world yet to write about it with the same kind of authority that I can write about this. I'm just trying to get there. And again, if people want to read your writing in the Inquirer, how do they find it? Philly.com, you go on, plug on the Inquirer, put my name in, and any story I'm doing ought to kick up. And your videos? Or videos are on Philly.com. Every week it's called Mob Scene. Every week there's a new video. We are out of time. This is the book we've been talking about, Mob Files, Mobsters, Malls, and Murder. George Anastasia, thank you very much. Thank you. I appreciate it. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.